We will be in Philippians 1, 27 through 30 today. If you want to turn there, it will be up on the screen too if you can see past me. I don't know if you can or not. But <coughs> September 26, 2012, the Iranian government arrested American citizen and pastor Saeed Abedini. Saeed had went to Iran to build an orphanage and to preach the gospel, which is not good if you go to Iran, by the way. He was held in Evan Prison, which is known as Iran's harshest, most brutal prison. On January 27th of this year, Saeed was sentenced to eight years' imprisonment at Evan, which some would call a death sentence due to the fact that he would be beaten, tortured, and mentally assaulted for that period of time. The authorities have told Saeed, whether truthfully or not, that he would be released if he would deny Christ and recant his faith. In a letter that Saeed sent out, which we will read later, he has said that that will never happen and that he has an opportunity while in prison to bring living water to empty vessels and to show love to those who he comes into contact with. Stories like these, I think, evoke a lot of emotion in us and can take us in so many different directions in our hearts and our minds. We think of the sadness of Saeed. We think of the sadness of his wife who lives here in America, in Idaho, actually. They, they live in Idaho. They've got two young kids. And, you know, stuff like that can kind of grab at your heart and make you think and wonder, hey, what's good? Where's God? All that type of stuff. So we wonder how we would feel, how we would act, how we would respond if we were in his situation. Men, if you were the one in an Iranian prison. Women, if you were the one whose husband was in an Iranian prison. How would we react? I think our passage today both confronts us with these thoughts and also comforts us as we think about them. Let's turn there and see what the Spirit of the Lord would have us to know and to do. So Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Let me pray before we read as well. God, your word is sweet and bitter at the same time, but it's always nourishing. God, I pray that this this time in your word would be a time of confrontation and comfort, friendship and fear. God, that you would apprehend us and comfort us at the same time. We pray for your spirit to enable us, God, to hear what's being said. And most of all, God, that we would apply what is being said by the power of your spirit. God, it has to be a supernatural work of your spirit or it is not going to happen. So help us, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read off the board. This is the ESV. Uh, we'll read the passage, then we'll talk about it some. Uh, starting verse 27. <clears throat> Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now that's not one of those passages that you put up on your refrigerator and walk by every day and smile and say, Ah, oh, there's that passage. <clears throat> But, all the same, very important, very powerful. Now, let's, let me recap for just a minute where we've been thus far in Philippians because it's going to set the stage for where we are now for, for these words from Paul. Paul opened his letter <clears throat> to these Philippians calling himself what? Anybody remember how he addressed himself to the Philippians? Not as an apostle, not as this and that, but one word. Paul identified himself as a slave which is important because a slave has no rights. And Paul told the Philippians, I'm Paul, I'm a slave. And he could have said, I'm an apostle, I'm this, I'm that, I'm an itinerant preacher, I travel all over the world preaching the gospel. But his, his introduction to them was, I'm a slave. And that he's a slave to the gospel and to the Philippians. He conferred on them grace and peace from God and spoke of his love for them. Remember the echo, the, the, the love was like an echo in their hearts just reverberating back and forth. 
He spoke of his imprisonment and said that his situation in jail had actually turned out to be a good thing for the growth and spread of the gospel. And in our last message, Paul said he was hard-pressed to know which would be better for him, dying and being with Christ, or living on and helping the Philippians grow in grace. He said he was sure that for their sake, he would be around a while longer for their progress and joy in the faith, which brings us to this passage today. Having established the fact that God was going to keep him around for a while for their sakes, Paul entreats them to respond to that work of God. And how they should respond is how we should respond, not just, try, not just in trying times like Sayyid Abedini's, but in all of our lives as the church. Our main points will revolve around answering a question derived out of the beginning of verse 27, which says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the main question that we're going to ask this morning is, What does a life worthy of the gospel involve? It's a long title, but it's all I could do, sorry. Or you could say, how do we live a life worthy of the gospel? That would be simpler, I guess. But Our passage will answer that question with three commands, which will serve as our outline. And you'll see them in the text. A life worthy of the gospel involves, or you live a life worthy of the gospel through three things. Standing. Striving. You probably will be by the end of the service. A life worthy of the gospel involves standing, striving, and suffering. It doesn't sound very encouraging, but as is God's way so many times, guys, what looks one way in our eyes gets turned into a blessing for His people. So let's dig in. Now before we get into our outline, I have to make one thing clear before we can progress here. When we speak of living worthy of the gospel, we're not saying and we don't mean that we have to try to live in a way that helps us to earn or merit salvation. That's not what we're saying. Okay, that's very important. It's not about trying harder to be or do better so that God can be happy that He did what He did to save us. Salvation is, was, and always will be a free gift of God's grace. Grace is what? Unmerited favor. It's undeserved. It's always undeserved. You have done nothing and can do nothing to earn your salvation. Please don't hear me saying try to earn something by what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. No manner of life, either before or after being born again, will earn you salvation. So please don't think this is about earning anything. Living a life worthy of the gospel is simply living in such a way that the gospel is clearly displayed in your everyday life and its power and glory are evident in all that you do. It's the working out of what God has already worked into you. And again, that is foundational because this is not a do better message. I don't want you to hear do better this morning. I don't want you to leave beat up because you think, well, I've not been doing very good. I've got to do better. That's not the point of this message. So please, please, please get that cemented in your heart. It's living so that people see God's activity in your life and it takes grace. Lots and lots of grace, as we'll see. And if you'll remember back, I, I, some of you would have been here, some of you wouldn't have been. When we talked about the definition of grace, it really boiled down to three words. Anybody remember? Three words for grace. God and work. That's a good, simple definition of grace. Do you want to know what grace is? Grace is God at work. And what we're talking about today is going to take a lot of grace. So, let's look at our first point. A life worthy of the gospel involves standing. Look at verse 27 again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Okay, so there's our standing. That's where we're getting standing from. What does it mean to stand firm? The phrase, you are standing firm, 
is actually one word in the original text, and it means to stand, to persevere, to persist, or, and this one I think is best suited for our passage, to keep one's standing. So what's significant about this? I think it's important to see that standing is not an offensive action. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It's defensive. You don't stand your ground as an offensive action. You stand your ground having already won your ground and defending against anything that would come your way. Does that make sense? You're not attacking here. You're standing. The ground has already been won. And you're standing firm upon the ground that you're that you have received. The conquering work has been done, so now the focus is on knowing and defending what is yours. And guys, this is so important if we're going to proceed in our Christian life, if we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel. We are not fighting to gain ground. We are standing the ground that Christ has won for us through His life, death, resurrection, and glorification. And, and please... Again, this is foundational to everything else. You can't go here and here until you understand that this is the, our attitude, especially toward the enemy. We're not going out attacking the enemy. The enemy is defeated. He knows that his time is brief. So what we do is stand the ground that Christ has already purchased with his blood. We're not going out trying to earn anything. We're standing the ground. Okay, that's important. Let me read a couple of passages. Just, if, you, if you're taking notes, just write these passages down. But listen to them. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, we'll come back to that, but let me read 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 along with that. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers to the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now let me recap some words for you out of these two passages. Has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. Now notice the past tense and the completeness of what has been done. Has blessed. Granted. Having escaped, which means having already escaped. And then you look at the completeness of it. Every spiritual blessing. All things. These are clear signs that what has been done is finished. And it's completely finished. What was Jesus' last words on the cross? It is finished. And we have got to start, guys, in our Christian life, looking to live a life worthy of the gospel, we've got to start from a finished salvation. That is imperative to everything else that we do. So we're not charging. We're not running necessarily. There's a place for walking and running. But our posture is we are standing the ground that has already been won. We have already received everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. We don't have to attain to it. We don't have to try to obtain it. It has been given to us. It is finished. It is done. Our standing that Paul is referring to has to come from the knowledge that the ground we are standing on is firmly under control of the living Christ. A life worthy of the gospel is a life of standing. Standing on ground that has already been conquered. It's very important. Very, very, very important. So that's our foundation. That was point one. A life worthy of the gospel is a standing life. Now, being rooted and grounded in the truth of standing, verse 27 moves us to our next point. A life worthy of the gospel involves striving. Now, this could get confusing because I just said you don't have to work for anything. You don't, okay, stay with me, okay? Let's look back at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. After encouraging us and them to stand, Paul says that they should be striving. Okay? Launching out from victory, which is what standing was about, we move into the work of striving. 
Now this striving is what the work of sanctification is all about. Your salvation is set in heaven. It's done. Okay, it's finished. You were justified the moment that you were regenerated. Your standing before God is perfect. He sees you through the blood of Christ. So that's, that's incredibly important. But it's no good to just say, okay, well, I'm forgiven. We have a life to live. Okay, that's what sanctification is all about. And that's what this striving is all about. How we are being conformed to the image of Christ is what this is about. The word striving side by side, and actually that's something like that there. Again, Greek text, all this phrase is one word. And this is, this is kind of neat, I thought. Because it gives us an idea of what this looks like. Sin affluentes. Affluentes. Sin affluentes. Now the sin part of this, that's why in means with. Okay? So that part of the word means with. Now what do you see here? What's that make you think of? What's that? Athlete. Athlete. It's the word we get our word athlete from. Um, and that word, the, the, the root word is athlos, uh, athleo, and it's, it's athlete. The Greek word means to engage in a contest or contend in public games or contend for a prize. That's, that's what the rest of the word is really all about. So, he's saying strive side by side, compete like an athlete, train in a public place, contend for a prize side by side. Now, Paul uses the analogy of an athlete several times in his writings. And again, write these passages down. You don't have to turn there. 2 Timothy 2.5. He says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So keep this in mind when we're talking about striving. When we're talking about striving side by side with each other, think about an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. That's 2 Timothy 2.5. Now listen to this one. I like this one a lot. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, if you're taking notes. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Remember our definition? Contend for a prize. So run that you may obtain it. You said, you're thinking, now wait, you told me I didn't have to obtain anything. Not your salvation. Your sanctification is a different process, okay? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So what do you see that an athlete does or should do in the thought pattern of striving. Let me just, again, recap these two passages a little bit. They have to compete according to the rules. That's what Paul said in 2 Timothy. They've got to exercise self-control in all things. They can't run aimlessly. And they must discipline their body and keep it under control. Now there's a lot in that, and we could, we could spend a few weeks diving into those things. We don't have weeks to do that, but... We're going to do it in about 15 or 20 minutes. Now, remember, we don't do these things in order to obtain grace, and we can't do them unless we see that we already have all we need in order to do them. I can't emphasize that enough. We live in a world, as Christians, that if you're not striving to move forward, you are going to move backward. There's no neutrality in the Christian walk. It's like we're going up on a down escalator. And if you're not pressing forward, if you're not going up against the crowd, you're going to go back down to where you were. Anybody ever seen that in their life? Man, you're striving and you're working. And you're, you're like, man, I'm making progress. Then you're like, I'm going to rest a minute. God, now I've got to do that work again to get back up to where I was before. I, let me tell you what, I've seen it time and time and time again in my life. Man, and, it's, and when you're striving, you're not really patting yourself on the back. You're, you're too busy working. You're too busy fighting the people to get up. And you're like, man, i got to rest for a second. All of a sudden you look and you're back further than you were before you started. And you're like, what in the world? That's how the Christian life is in this world. That's how it's designed to be. Because this world is 
Not our home. This world is hostile toward us. Love not the world or the things of the world is what John says in 1 John. We can't get caught up in what the world's doing. Stand still in the Christian walk and you're going to go the opposite way that you want to go. We have to know the rules. Okay? That's the first thing we're going to look at as we're looking at walking up this down escalator. We have to know the rules, which comes down to knowing what the Scriptures say. Has anybody ever seen the FCA Bible? It's called God's Game Plan. That's what they call it. It's, it's a Bible, but the title on the front is God's Game Plan. And you know, I think that's a pretty good summary of what the Bible is. It's God showing us what His will is. In order to strive forward, we have to focus our attention and our affection on the Word of God. And we have to compete, like Paul says in 2 Timothy, we've got to compete according to the rules that are written there. You say, oh, it's about rule keeping. No, it's not about rule keeping. But it is about a boundary that God sets for us that we have to operate within. How about the next one was exercising self-control in all things. Now this is what striving looks like. Okay, Competing according to the rules, exercising self-control in all things. Part of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians is, well, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the last one listed. I don't mean it's any less important. And in 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind or self-control. So, out of those two passages, the fruit of the Spirit and that 2 Timothy passage, to me, this is about the necessity of relying on the Spirit, the Spirit of God. Now listen, let me, let me tell you something that will change your life. The Spirit of God lives in you. You say, yeah, I know that. No, listen. The Spirit of God, the same God who spoke and everything we see came into existence, the Spirit of God lives in you, Christian. You say, yeah, I know that. Do you, do you really know that? Because all of these difficulties, all these trials, all of this striving is powered by an omnipotent God who has chosen to make His home in your life. Is it too hard? Can God make a rock so heavy He can't lift it? I mean, people ask silly questions like that. How powerful is God? Is there anything God can't do? Well, God can't lie. So He must not be omnipotent. That's silly stuff that people say. But listen, what are you facing in your life right now? I don't know. I can tell you what I'm facing, but you don't have weeks for that either. Whatever you're facing, the sovereign God of the universe has given you His power to strive through it, to walk through it. He's given you the power to sanctification. He's given you the power to overcome. He's given you the power to do whatever needs done. Everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness is what we saw back in our first point. Through the Spirit of God. So this, this self-control that we're talking about is Holy Spirit enabled. Now listen. Think about Thanksgiving. How many times have you got done eating on Thanksgiving and said, oh man, I ate entirely too much. And then this phrase comes out, and I just couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. There was just so much food there, and it smelled so good. I just couldn't help myself. Or you pop off at somebody at work, or you pop off at one of your kids. You lose your temper, which is your self-control, temperance. And you say, you know what, I just, I just couldn't help myself. I couldn't help it. In that moment, I just couldn't help myself. The spirit of self-control does what we can't do. And a life worthy of the gospel that is striving has a spirit of self-control and operates with self-control. The spirit can do what we can't. Self-control by the power of the spirit says that you can. A life worthy of the gospel is a self-controlled life. Striving involves self-control. And note that he says self-control in all things. All things. You know, sometimes those alls are real comforting in the Bible, and sometimes they're real convicting. Self-control in all things. Now, the next one out of that passage in 2 Corinthians, I think is amazingly pertinent for us in our time, in our day. A life worthy of the gospel is a self-controlled life, a life that competes according to the rules, and it's a life that does not run aimlessly. We are part of a mindless culture. 
I mean, it's mindless. A dumbed-down, non-critically thinking culture that is aimless in so much of what is done. That's where we live. And if we're not real careful, we get sucked into that. TV, the Internet, movies, even books are mass-marketed to cater to this mindless culture. Watch your kids watch TV. I mean, it's like there's a wall. It's like there's just something that's separate. It's like... It's like the mind just, and it's so aimless. It's so pointless. Watch yourself watch TV. You know, don't, let's not just throw the kids under the bus here. You turn the TV on, and it's really like we just turn our minds off. That, and that's what we say, man, I just, want to, I just want to switch off for a while. A life worthy of the gospel, a life that's striving, is not aimless. And it cannot be aimless. What do you do aimlessly? Look at the overall arc of your life. What is your aim? What are you aiming at with your life? What are you aiming at when you get up out of the bed in the morning? What are you aiming at when you sit down to eat? What are you aiming at when you go to work? What are you aiming at when you're talking to your kids? What's your aim? If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. That's what the old saying says. And it's true. You just... Well, what was you shooting at? Nothing. I was just shooting. And I'm afraid that's how we live most of our lives. What should be the aim of your life? This is really an easy question. Four words. The aim of your life should be the glory of God. That's it. That is it. That should be the aim of your life. So if you're talking about living a life worthy of the gospel, if you're talking about striving in the midst of living that life, your single aim should be the glory of God. Period. When you get up in the morning, for the glory of God. How you get up in the morning, for the glory of God. When you sit down to have breakfast, to the glory of God. Scripture says whether you eat or drink or any such thing, do all to the glory of God. Now listen. An aimless person does not have that go in mind. And I'm talking to myself. Why do you have a job? Well, so I can pay the bills. Wrong. You have a job for the glory of God. Why do you have children? Oh, because they're so much fun. Wrong. You have children for the glory of God. Why do you live and move and breathe and have your existence? Well, so I can enjoy. Wrong. It's for the glory of God. And I'm afraid that we live so aimlessly, we don't know why we're alive. We don't know why we're putting one foot in front of the other. We don't know why we're paying our bills. We don't know why we're eating what we eat. We don't know why we sleep when we sleep. We don't know why. We don't know why. We don't know why. It's like you're driving up the road and you're like, how did I get here? I don't remember driving to this point. I don't remember any of this. Have you ever got to work and think, I don't remember, I don't, I remember driving here? That should not be how our lives are, but I'm afraid it characterizes our lives. Right now, I see blank eyes. I see, uh, I'm just not hearing what you're saying. The point of your life is the glory of God. And Paul says, I will not run aimlessly. I won't box as though I'm beating the air. Like there's nothing in front of me. There is a prize. There is something up ahead of you. And it is the glory of God. And it is why you were created. And striving side by side to live a life worthy of the gospel, you have to have that in your crosshairs. You have to have that as your aim. I am shooting for that and that alone. And anything else is what? It's sin. Sin is missing the mark. And we've all sinned and fell short of what? The glory of God. What are you aiming at every day when you put the rifle up to your shoulder? Getting through? Getting by? Making it another day? That is no way to live. And I think we're guilty of it. No, we are as guilty of it in the church as anybody out there that's lost. Another day, another day. People ask, how are you doing? Well, I'm alive. Really? Is that all we've got? Is that all we've got to give the world? Well, another day on top of the ground, so I guess I'm all right. No. May it never be, church. What is the aim of your life? Your home life, your work, your relationships, your diet, your sleep habits, your financial outlook. All of these should be purposefully aimed at glorifying God. And this ties into the last thing we point out out of uh, 2 Corinthians, which was disciplining our bodies and keeping them under control. How are you doing there? Uh, I'm not doing real well. 
But you do that by the Spirit's power. And why do you do it? Why do you do it? For the glory of God. How? By the Spirit. Why? For the glory of God. And that's what this striving is all about. It's about living in such a way that you've got a single aim. You're disciplining your body. You're, you're competing according to the rules. And you're doing this for one single purpose and it's to the glory of God. That's what striving is all about. That's what this work that we do is all about. It's making sure that I am putting one foot in front of the other on purpose. How are you doing with that, guys? Back in Philippians, Paul says that the purpose tells us what the purpose of striving is. Look at verses 27 and 28. Listen, this is fantastic. Why would we strive? Why would we have this single aim? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So what are you striving for? For the faith of the gospel. Now that's an odd phrase. Striving for the faith of the gospel. Not by the faith of the gospel, not in the faith of the gospel, but striving for the faith of the gospel. Our striving is really a battle for faith in the power of God, in the power of the gospel, to be active in our lives. Our striving, let me read that again, is really a battle for faith in the power of the gospel to be active in our lives. Guys, listen, your faith is not easy to come by. It's not just something that's going to pop up like the Easter lilies are starting to come up. You wake up, oh, there's my faith. Where have you been? It's been a long, cold winter. It's not going to work that way. Okay? Your faith is not easy to come by. We're not talking about being born again, but we are talking about your progress in the faith. Remember, we're either going forward or we're going backward. We have to strive to grow in our faith. We have to strive to see that faith apprehend and apply the power of the gospel to our lives. And without that, there is no hope for any spiritual growth. What are you striving for? Strive for the faith in the gospel. For the Strive for the faith that comes as a result of the gospel being worked into your life. Striving for the faith of the gospel. Guys, strive for it. It's worth it. Look what it leads to. It leads to a freedom from fear of our opponents. And it's an assurance of our own salvation. So this striving brings some pretty doggone good rewards. It's worth it. Now, standing and striving. We've kind of built a case up to this point. Standing, knowing that we have everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Launching out from that into a life of striving, of work, of aim, of purpose. So we move from those things and we move to our last point. A life worthy of the gospel involves suffering. Our standing and our striving ultimately lead us to an unexpected gift. And that gift is suffering. Let's look at verses 29 and 30 of our text. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. Not really the gift we're looking for now, is it? It's not like we're going to go, God, give me suffering. Man, that would be awesome. God, I want some suffering today. I mean, really, we don't live that way. Nobody thinks that way. God, man, would you just lay it on me? I want to suffer today. Standing on the sure foundation, now follow this train of thought with me. Standing on the sure foundation of Christ's salvation and striving to see that salvation applied to our lives in a practical way, we begin to live in such a way that God can trust us with suffering. What is God's ultimate purpose in saving us? I've got a scripture for it. So, Romans 8.29, you've heard it many times before. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God has predestined a path for the Christian, and that path leads to conformity to the image of Christ. That's God's ultimate goal for you as a believer. He wants to conform you so that you look like, act like, smell like, breathe like Christ. Christ likeness. God's purpose in saving us is so that we can be conformed to the image of His Son. God wants to make me, us, like Jesus. Now, how was Jesus perfected? i got a scripture for this too, so I'm coming. Look at Hebrews 2.10. You don't have to go there, but write it down. Hebrews 2.10. Listen to this. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, which is what we just talked about in Romans, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Let me read it again. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now we just said that God wants to conform us to the image of His Son, and He wants us to be perfect like His Son. Well, how did He perfect His Son? He perfected His Son through suffering. Hmm. We talk a lot, guys, about wanting to be like Jesus. Man, I just want to be like Jesus. But do we really? If we do, the Scriptures promise that part of our conformity to His image will include suffering. Suffering. Look again at how Paul puts it in our verses here. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Paul says that it has been granted to you that you should not only believe in Jesus, but that it has been granted to you that you should also suffer for His sake. Now, let me give you a this was probably the shock of my study. It has been granted. That phrase is one Greek word. Which seems to be a pattern in this, by the way. It literally means, it has been granted, is a word that means to do something pleasant or agreeable. Or to do a favor for someone. So God says, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to let you suffer. I'm going to do something pleasant and favorable towards you. Here you go. It's suffering. God is doing us a pleasant or agreeable favor by allowing us to suffer when we live a life worthy of the gospel. Now guys, this is... A, the message of John the Baptist was what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came preaching the same message. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is their way of saying, take this mind out that you've got right now and change it. Exchange it. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia, and it literally means to change your mind. Like you change your oil. Take out the old oil, put in new oil. Take out the old mind, put in a new mind. Scripture says that we're to be transformed by what? By the renewing of our minds. Now, we look at suffering and we don't think blessing. We look at suffering and we think, suffering. We think, bad, suffering. But I think we've got to repent as the church in our concept of suffering. We don't see suffering as a gift. We try to avoid it at all costs. So much of what we pray for is, to, is for God to keep suffering away from us. God, don't let me suffer. God, don't let my kids suffer. God, don't let this sick person suffer. God, don't let my sister-in-law suffer. But suffering is a gift. Suffering is God doing us a favor. Maybe we're fighting God's purpose by not embracing suffering. I want to read two passages out of 2 Corinthians that talk about suffering. We're in 2 Corinthians 4, starting verse 7. Let me read this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Listen, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now that sounds like suffering, doesn't it? And what did Paul just say? This is for the sake of Christ. This is for my death and your life. That's part of what suffering does in our lives. And and again, love the fact that Paul doesn't gloss over the severity of these trials. Uh, Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, carrying in our body the death of Jesus. God, this was hard. Whatever he was going through, it was hard. Now, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Second Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Now listen. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now listen to the words of the apostle. You've heard them before, but listen. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A life worthy of the gospel sees suffering as a blessing. Now, let me ask you a question. What was Paul's thorn? Let me give you the answer. You don't know. I don't know. If God wanted us to know, He'd say, I had a thorn in my flesh. It was this. It was blank. I don't know what your thorn might be. I love the fact that God doesn't tell us what His thorn was. Because then we would think, well, you'd have to have that thorn to have a thorn. But the thorn could be a lot of different things. Trials and temptations come and go. Thorns stick around. And we ask God, God, please remove this thorn. God, please remove Three times he said, I entreat. And finally he said, no. I will not remove this thorn. This thorn is for your good. This suffering is for your good. Now listen, guys. I'm going to tell you right now. My system locks up when I hear that. What if this thing that I'm going through never goes away? What if this feeling never leaves me? What if this trial never ends? What if there is no light at the end of this tunnel? And Paul says, I'm content with it. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. His power is perfected in weakness. God sends your power. God sends your power. He says, okay, I'll send my power and it's going to be done through your weakness. And we said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I meant. I mean, let's have a good service today and everybody feel good. You want power, it comes through weakness. Weakness comes through suffering. Paul doesn't gloss over the severity of his sufferings, but he also doesn't despise them. They are bad in his flesh, but glorious in his spirit. Hard for him, good for others. Weak to the physical eye, but strong in the strength of God's might. This is the gift of suffering. And it comes after we stand and after we strive. It comes in a life worthy of the gospel. Now, I want to wrap this all up. And in order to wrap it all up, I want to point to one ultra, super, mega... I'm about to drop a wisdom bomb that will decimate the entire Stanford Road area. (laughs) This is an incredibly important point to wrap all this up. This point is essential to understanding how all of this takes place. This standing, this striving, this suffering, this life worthy of the gospel. Who is this passage addressed to? And, and by the way, I just assumed this position. So I'm, I'm, I'm digging in here so you know. Who is this passage addressed to? Not a trick question. What's the name of the book? Thank you. It's addressed to the Philippian church. Okay? And don't write that off as unimportant or pointless. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. This fact makes all of the you's and the yours plural. Okay? 
So when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he's talking to the whole church. When he says he wants to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, he's talking to the whole church. When he calls for striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, it naturally means that they should all be striving side by side. And when he says that it has been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake, it has been granted to the church, to all of them to suffer. So this is a corporate mentality. This is about church life together. Together. It cannot and it will not be done apart from the church. Guys, that is super, ultra, mega important. Again, I can't emphasize it enough. This is a corporate thing. Nobody, nobody is called to do this by themselves. Nobody. Because you cannot do this by yourself. It's impossible. And God never meant for it to be possible. We must stand, strive, and suffer together or we will fail. You cannot stand without the church. Your striving is in vain without the church and your suffering is impossible without the church. This is huge in our individualistic, all-for-me society. In a culture that says the church is irrelevant and unnecessary, the Holy Spirit through the Apostles' pen says that the church is central if we are to live a life worthy of the gospel. This will not happen outside of the context of the local church. It can't and it won't. Now, as we close, I want to revisit Saeed Abedini. I believe we can look at his example. The timing of this has been so impeccable for me, preparing for this message and hearing about this man. I think we can look at his example to see what a life worthy of the gospel looks like in real time. I want to read a letter that he wrote from Evan Prison. Listen for the striving, I'm sorry, the standing, the striving, the suffering that oozed from this letter. Okay. By the way, before I read this, savesaeed.org. S-A-V-E-S-A-E-E-D.org. You can sign a petition. They're trying to do work to get him out of that prison. Savesaeed.org. Oh, Savesaeed. Yeah, Savesaeed. Now, this is a letter, and this letter is actually dramatized on that website. You can hear it read. It's not him reading it, but, but listen to this letter. February 18th, 2013. Writing from my heart. My dear friends, the conditions here get so very difficult that my eyes get blurry, my body does not have the strength to walk, and my steps become very weak and shaky. Various bullying groups, the psychological warfare, almost a year of not seeing my family, physical violence, actions committed to humiliate me, insults, being mocked, being confronted with extremists in the prison who create another prison within the prison walls, and the death threats. It is interesting that because I am a Christian pastor, I am carefully watched. I am expected to smile at them despite what is being done and to understand why they are doing all of these things. But of course, I can clearly see what is going on and because I want to serve God, I see all of these difficulties as golden opportunities and great doors to serve. There are empty containers who are thirsty for a taste of the living water and we can quench their thirst by giving them Jesus Christ. Maybe you are also in such a situation. So pray and seek God that He would use you and direct you in the pressures and difficulties of your lives. There are those who are enemies of the living Bible and do not want to hear. They are trying to put me under such horrific pressures that, that are sometimes unbearable so that they can show me that my faith is empty and not real. And after all of these pressures, after all of the nails they have pressed against my hands and feet, they are only waiting for one thing, for me to deny Christ but they will never get this from me. This is why the Bible is truth, and they are in the way of destruction. Sound familiar? There is another group who does not know the gospel of truth, he goes on to say. Instead of truly listening and meditating on God's word, they are just waiting to see how I react to all of their pressures and persecution. What will come out of me during these intense times? But again, this is another golden opportunity for me to shine the light of Christ in the dark world and to let God use me. Yesterday when I was singing worship songs, the head of my cell room attacked me in order to stop me from praising, but in response I hugged him and showed him love. He was shocked. 
It is during these harsh conditions that I deeply need God's saving grace so that I can be a fragrant scent of Christ in the dark house of Evan Prison. I have often seen this shining morning star in the darkness of this prison, and I have seen His amazing and supernatural works. Oh, how beautiful is seeing the light of the shining morning star of Christ in such evil darkness. So, see your golden opportunities and pressures and difficulties. See the shining morning star in the dark times of your life. I love Him. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous to me. I now know that I have not been forgotten and that we are together in His path. God gives me grace. This is my message for the church. Stay strong for His glory. He will come back soon. Be with God and give your best efforts for His kingdom. Pastor Saeed, servant of Jesus Christ in chains for the endurance of the gospel. I love you all. A life worthy of the gospel may not look like what we want it to. But from Saeed's example here, I think we can agree that as we stand, strive, and suffer together, God's glory is revealed and our good is secured. May we know this life worthy of the gospel in its fullness as we seek it together, as we stand, strive, and suffer together. Let's pray. God, if we've ever needed grace, it's now. If we've ever needed to repent, it's now. I don't like the thought of this message, God, honestly. It scares me. It bothers me. I need to repent, God. I need help. I need help to see things the way that you see them. I need help to know that you are in control when it doesn't look like you're in control. I need help to see suffering as a gift from you, God. I need help to know that I can stand by the power of the gospel, that I can strive by your grace, and that when suffering comes, God, that I can look it in the eye and thank you for it. God, that is not me naturally. I need your help. And I ask for it now for all of us. May we live lives that are worthy of the gospel, empowered by your grace, led by your spirit, trusting in your promises. Help us. We ask it in Jesus' name.